Good morning, Four Oaks Church. Pastor Paul, the lead pastor here at Four Oaks Kalarn. Before we get rolling this morning, let me just ask us to pray for, for something. So this weekend, um, a huge entourage of our high school students and adult leaders, God bless their souls, the adult leaders, um, went over to Laguna Beach for the spring retreat for our senior high students and just pray for them as they come back. That is such, um, you guys know, if you've grown up in the church at all, um, how pivotal retreats, um, you know, getting away, um, going uh, for summer mission trips, all of those sorts of things, summer camp, how, how crucial those were in your, in your walk with Christ and may it be true for, for that group of students coming back as well. So when we pray for God's, uh, open up God's word this morning, we'll pray for them. Um, for us here, we are in the gospel of Matthew. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. Let me come out of the gate strong this morning. Can we do that? strong with some sort of bold, in-your-face set of questions, all right? So, so here, here we go. Number one, on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you? Now, don't think about that too much. Don't overanalyze it. Don't rationalize. Don't say, well, Pastor Paul, it depends on what the mean word means, happy. You know, don't do any of that, right? How happy are you? Just gut Scale of one to 10, that's the first question. Number two, what number do you wish it was? And finally, what do you think would have to change in your life for that number to change? Now, I know many of you, I know some of you really well, some of you are totally uncomfortable with this line of questioning. Can we be honest? You may say, well, Pastor Paul, it doesn't matter if I'm happy or not. I'm I'm, I'm here to live the Christian life in obedience and duty and trying harder, and sometimes you just have to suck it up and grin and bear it, right? I'm not so sure about that. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say about this issue of being happy. Paul says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your Faith. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Now, Paul doesn't say that he's working for their duty. He doesn't say they're work, he's working for their drudgery. He doesn't say he's working for their emotionless obedience. Paul says that he is working for their joy, and which means this. Joy is not peripheral to the Christian life. In fact, Paul says, through your joy, you stand firm in the faith, which makes sense, right? When you think about what is going to fuel you in your Christian life, what is, what is going to be the fuel that takes you to the end, that helps you persevere, what do you think it's going to be? It's going to be joy. Because well, let me ask you an honest question. Why do you think it is people fall away spiritually? Why do you think it is, and we're going to get to this this text sometime in the next millennium in Matthew chapter 13, where it talks about the, seer and the, the, the sower and the seeds, and the seeds are scattered around, and some spring up for a time only to die out. Why is it that somebody, some people have this sort of spurt of growth, seemingly confession of faith, conversion of some sort, only to fall away in the end? And I would, I would submit this. Somewhere along the way, they become dissatisfied. 
Somewhere along the way, they become discontent. Somewhere along the way, they begin to say, this is not what my life is supposed to look like. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I bargained for. This is why C.S. Lewis says when he's talking about joy, he says, joy is the serious business of heaven. And make no mistake, Christian, joy is the serious business of Jesus. And that's what he wants to talk to us about this morning in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that we sort of did an introduction to this new section in Matthew, and we saw how Jesus begins this, this sermon with an invitation, right? And this invitation fundamentally in these first 12 verses, which we traditionally in church life call the Beatitudes, the Blesseds, right? Um, and we talked about that this idea of the blessed, makarios is what, what the word is in the Greek. It literally means to be happy. It means to flourish. It means to experience shalom in the depths of your soul. In other words, Jesus, like the great philosopher, and this is, remember, the Sermon on the Mount very much mirrors what we find in Proverbs and Psalms and the wisdom literature it begins with this invitation, and it's as, Jesus is, as if Jesus is saying, Christian, do you want to live the good life? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to flourish? Then let me tell you how to align your lives with the values of my kingdom. Now, let me just say this so that you know what I'm not saying this morning. There are many good reasons that you might be sad today. There might be medical things going on in your body. There might be some sort of brokenness in a relationship. Some of you might be grieving the loss of a loved one. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's asking, do you want it to be well with your soul? Do you want to be truly at peace, content, knowing that your heart is right with God? Do you want to be happy in me? If so, you are blessed, you are flourishing. And I would simply say this, if God calls us to joy, and he does, and by the way, I'm not gonna do any of this silly distinction between joy and happiness and all those things intermingle biblically, okay? If God calls us to joy and it's crucial to our growth and our perseverance, and, I, I, pres- I, and I, I maintain that it is, and we are not joyful, because that, that's an issue, right? And it may be because we have set the conditions for our joy. In other words, this has to be happening for me to have joy, and that has to be happening, and this has to be going on, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if we're not experiencing joy, it might be that we haven't put our lives in alignment with where God says joy is truly to be found. And so Jesus shows us a better way. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word. And if you're new with us, we, we do this not out of ceremony or mere ritual or tradition. It just, it's a symbolic reminder to all of us that we stand under the Word of God. It speaks to us. It speaks over us. 
It directs us. Matthew 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he, and that means Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we ask for hearts of faith because these things seem too far-fetched, too unbelievable, too, too out of touch with 21st century lives. But Father, this is your word. And the problem is not your word. The problem lies with us. So give us eyes of faith, hearts to entrust to you. Lord, we think about our senior high students. They're asking the very same questions we are. How do I be happy in this life? And so, Father, we, we pray for them as they return from their retreat that you would continue to offer up yourself as the only fount of joy and happiness in this life. And, Lord, we ask for these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take your seats. Now, believe it or not, four or five years ago in our summer series, we preached through the Sermon on the Mount, and we did it by taking, or actually, we, we preached through the Beatitudes, correction. We just preached through these first 12 verses, and what we did is we took a week, and we unpacked each Beatitude separately, one at a time. And I decided it would be cool if I preached all 12 of those sermons right here, right now, consecutively, Right? which would be awesome, and blessed are the remnant who would remain after all that was over, right? And now there is great value in doing that, and I think that's one way to, to approach the Beatitudes, but it's not the only way, and that's not what we're going to do this time. We're going to take them all as one whole, and, and one of the reasons we're going to do that is that's how the Beatitudes were meant to be received. Remember that when people came to hear Jesus preach and they're anticipating, they, they're, they're wanting to know, Jesus, where, where is the good life? What, what, how do we align ourselves with your values, your kingdom? These were meant to be received as a whole. They were sort of meant to shock them into kingdom reality. And they're meant to shock us. They're meant to take us aback. I'll just tell you, if, we, if you don't leave here today so, and sort of disoriented and stunned in some way. Maybe we haven't done our job. But, but the difference in approach is just taking one at a time versus all in one gulp. It's sort of the difference 
you find in the way people respond to you when you're ever at a red light and it turns green and you don't go immediately. You, you all know what I'm talking about. And you're one of these two people as well. Some people behind you, because they're filled with the, you know, you're filled with the fruit of the Spirit, they'll lightly tap on the horn, right? Ding, ding, Pastor Paul, you're kind of dozing off there, buddy. Why don't you get moving, right? Except one time the guy in front of me had actually fallen asleep at the wheel. Well, that's a whole other story, all right? That, 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 that was wild. But there's some of you, there's some people, oh, no, 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 right? You know who you are. It's, it's, it's the redneck guy in the jacked-up truck with the big bullhorn, right? And who just lays, lays on it, right? And it scares the bejeebers out of you, and you freak out. And, and by the way, you are one of those two people, and there are no in-betweens. Okay? That's just the way it is. That's what we have here this morning. Jesus lays on the horn. If you want to find happiness, if you want to find the good life, the life flourishing, here you go, and it's just this stream, okay? It's just this deluge that is meant to disorient us. It's meant to shock us. It's, it's meant to, like, wake us up from our spiritual slumber. Now, as we get into these, you'll notice in verses 1 and 2, those are not throwaway verses where it talks about Jesus going up onto the mountain, Jesus opening his mouth. As we said last week, this is Matthew's way of saying Jesus is taking the seat of Moses. Because after all, who was the most famous prophet who ascended the most famous mountain, who opened the word of, of God, brought that down to the people? That was Moses on Mount Sinai. And here, Jesus is taking his place. And he's not just simply Moses part two. He is the law. He is the son of God. He is speaking with authority. He is King Jesus an interesting exercise to do is go through Matthew and see how many parallels that Matthew draws to, to help us compare Moses to Jesus. Both were born under incredible hardship. Both were born with a king wanting to exterminate them. Both had to find refuge in Egypt. Both were brought out of Egypt to safety, to save God's people, and on and on and on. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting parallel. Why is all this important? What Jesus says is true, and we accept it as authority. This is, this is not sage advice. These are not three tips to a happy and better life. And because of, because of this, because Jesus is speaking as king, and some of the things in here are so counterintuitive, they are so upside down that we have to remember God knows. And there is an invitation in these first two verses to entrust ourselves to him, to, to engage the sermon with faith. Now, let me say this. There's, if there's 5,000 commentaries on Matthew, there's 5,000 different ways to, to chop up the sermon here, right? Not literally, but you get what I'm saying, to kind of organize it and divide it. Let, let me explain the way that I think makes sense to me. It's not the only way by any stretch of the imagination, which is the beauty of God's word. The more you study it, the more it reveals about itself to you. But I think what you are going to see, and this does seem to be a scholarly consensus, that each beatitude or pronouncement seems to build upon the one that came before it. And, and you can't, it's like, it's like the Jenga thing. You can't take out one piece of it lest it all kind of tumble to the ground. 
But we're going to look at these Beatitudes sort of in three sections, okay? And these aren't meant to be rigid categories. It's just to denote a flow of these Beatitudes. And first of all, Jesus is going to take us before God, where we examine ourselves. And then he's going to take us to examine ourselves before others. And finally, he's going to take us to examine ourselves before the world. So before God, before others, before the world. Now, let's, let's dig into that first one, before God. The first beatitude, in many ways, is the most important one. And by the way, I'm going to say that about every beatitude. I just want you to know, okay? But, but, but there is a particular sense, if you deviate from this one, even by a degree, over the course of time, you'll find yourself very far afoot of what Jesus intends here. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is Jesus inviting to poor in spirit? That sounds like we're kind of like, like you know, mealy mouth, kind of bad talking ourselves or getting down on ourselves. That's not the, the sense here. The, the idea is that Jesus is inviting us in, get ready, to take a look at ourselves, to take a look at our hearts, our motivations, to do an honest self-assessment about who we are and where our heart is in relationship to God. It means taking a, post, taking a posture of humility, coming to God and saying, God, shine the light of your truth into the deepest recesses of my heart, and I'm going to listen to you. This is what David does in Psalm 25. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I will wait all day long. This beatitude, this first one, being poor in spirit, it needs to come with a truth and advertising FDA label kind of thing, right? Be careful if you pray this prayer. Because if you pray it, God will answer it. God will show you your true heart. God will show you your sinfulness, your brokenness, your, your, your spiritual poverty, how you bring nothing to the table, how you've gotten it all wrong. He, he will, he'll be faithful to answer this. And when that happens, you can do one of two things. One, you can do what most people do. You can ignore it. You can shove it down. You can put a lid on it. And this will give rise to all sorts of issues in your life, all sorts of addictions, whether it's anxiety or sex or pornography or food. For some of you, it might, it, you might sanitize it, and it'll, it'll send you running to your health and um, your, your, the preservation of your, of your body. Anything, though, to keep from dealing with this very uncomfortable truth. That, that, that's one way to deal with it. Another way to deal with it is to acknowledge it, to agree with God on it, to not rationalize, to not set it aside, but to just sit and receive what God is revealing. And when we do this, this brings us to our second beatitude, the appropriate response is to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be 
comforted. That's not a popular word. It literally means to lament. It means to agree with God. It means to stop fighting and to say, I got it, God. You're showing me my true self. And because of that, I'm lamenting. I'm, cont- I'm confessing. I'm, I'm moving away from self-centered despair. That's not necessarily mourning, by the way. And I'm moving to God-centered confession. And the promise here is that God comforts those who mourn. Let me, let me try to explain it this way. If those of you who know me know this, I, I don't like being sad. I don't do sad, okay? If I lived in the 100-acre wood, who would you be? I would be Tigger. Some of you would be Al. Some of you would be Eeyore. But you get the idea. And who is Tigger? I mean, he's carefree, bounces around. However, being carefree and bouncing around is not the same as being happy. It's not the same thing as joy. It's not the same thing as shalom. Sometimes the busyness and activity of which we are all addicted to, by the way, can just be a cover for spiritual anxiety. What does that word disease mean? Dis-ease. Discomfort. Dis-comfort. It's the busyness that masks spiritual poverty. And here's the result. Guys, when we don't listen to the Spirit of God and, have, and be poor in spirit and come to Him in submission, and then in turn let that lead us to mourning and lamenting over our sin, we will not be flourishing. We might be busy. We might be frenetic. We might be on the move. But we won't be truly happy. However, if we embrace the poverty of spirit God calls us to, we in turn move to mourning. That's the happy person. Why? What does it say here? That is the person who shall be comforted. That's, and how are we comforted? We are, we, we are comforted by the gospel. We are comforted by the mercies of God. We are comforted to know that, yes, I am wretched and sinful, and I am poor in spirit, and yes, I am being led to confess my sin, but at that moment, that is the very place where the gospel breaks through. And when we're not poor in spirit, and when we're not mourned, guess what? We miss Jesus. And so if we find ourselves in an incredibly discontented, joyless place, sometimes we think, well, it'll be that thing that will fix that, 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 that trip, that experience, that new car, that knew this, that knew that, that knew that new way to arrange my life. And all that does is feed the spiritual anxiety. And at the end of the day, we lie in bed at night and we know it's true. I'm not flourishing. I'm not truly happy because I haven't, been give, I haven't given myself the opportunity to be comforted by the gospel. And you may say right now, well, Pastor Paul, my gosh, that sounds like that'll take some time. Yep. That's going to take some quiet. That's going to, that's going to take a, a little bit of a different pace. That's going to mean slowing down, not in laziness or lethargy, but in just being still before the presence of God, letting his word shine into your heart and listening to him. Now, where does that lead us? 
that being poor in spirit and mourning, it leads, verse 5, to meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A lot of times when we think of meekness, you heard meek as a mouse. Uh, we've had mice around. I've never known a mouse who's been meek. Do you know a mouse that's meek? Mouse are anything but meek. They're loud, smelly, noisy, and chew up things, okay? But meek, we oftentimes associate that, 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 that the meek person is timid. They're soft. They're insecure. They're, they're anxious. They, they kind of tiptoe around conflict. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was the most meek man that ever lived because Jesus knew who he was and where his identity was rooted in the Father and the Godhead. Meekness, before we even talk about outward manifestations of this, meekness is fundamentally a disposition that rests securely in knowing who I am. I can have an appropriate self-assessment of myself that will then lead me to not inappropriately insert myself into situations. See, the meek person is a humble person. The meek person is a restrained person. The meek person realizes just because someone said this or someone posted that does not mean that the world is going to, 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 to be destroyed and fall away if I don't exercise my right to say what I think about every situation. If, if I could just put one stamp over the last few years in the broader world and even in the church, it would be this, blessed are the meek. Now, why does it say, this is interesting, that the meek will inherit the earth? Sometimes, as you're studying these, by the way, these, um, these Beatitudes, and, and because they're kind of like the Psalms and Proverbs, that means they're meant to be, what, read over and over and over again. One of the things that you can do to sort of like get the sense of what Jesus is saying is to say the opposite. And if there, if there ever was a, a Beatitude for this culture, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is the opposite of that? Blessed are the brash. Blessed are the aggressive. They are the ones who will win. They are the ones who will come out on top. We are operating in a non-meek way. In a non, this is my new word, meekish way, right? When we aggressively assert ourselves with a spirit of agitation, with a spirit of contempt, a spirit of haughtiness, and we do that, why do we do that? Because we think that's what we have to do. If someone doesn't say it, Pastor Paul, I've got to say it. If, if I don't say this thing or do this thing, then, then everything is going to fall apart. But you know what that fundamentally reveals about us when we are not meek? That we don't trust God. See, sometimes it's better to say, you know what, I could do this, I could say that, I could go there, but God, I'm entrusting that one to you. I don't have to win, because it doesn't say those who win will inherit the earth. It says those who are meek. Let me just ask you this, if you're not a meek person, are you happy? I, I, I've never met, I know this is tongue in cheek, 
a happy, angry person. It's enough said about that, right? When we're not meek, we're not blessing others. But when we are meek, we're letting God work. And you can go to bed with your head on the pillow at night knowing, I didn't do everything I could to do this, but I can go to sleep tonight trusting God. Blessed are the meek. Now, when we come to this fourth beatitude, this is sort of the bridge between the first three and the second set of beatitudes here. Remember what we said, and let me read that beatitude. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Remember what we said the word righteousness means in Matthew. It does not mean perfection. It's not forensic righteousness. It's not like the, the alien righteousness that Christ imputes to our account. That, that's a beautiful righteousness, and we have to have it to be saved. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about whole person behavior, consistency, being the same on the inside as you are on the outside. This is when he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That means you must be whole. You must be fully consistent inwardly and outwardly. And as we start with that poor in spirit and work our way down to mourn, to meekness, to have a, to have a calm in our soul before God, I, I promise you this, God will absolutely transform the desires of your heart. No longer will you be satisfied with the same old to make you happy. You will realize there's only one path to happiness, and that's living my life in alignment with the values of God's kingdom. Blessed, Jesus says, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now listen, for they shall be satisfied. Is there ever again, I'm going to say this a couple of times in this sermon, been a, been a culture that is more discontent than this one? And it seems like the more we get, the more discontent we are. And, and, the, and the internet and social media, no doubt, have much to do with this. Because now we can spy on anybody in the world at almost any time. What they're doing, when they're doing it, how they're doing it. Oh, I want to do that. If I could do that, if I could have that. Is that making you any happier? Is that, you know, Dr. Phil, is that working for you? It doesn't work for me. See, as, as we make our way through these Beatitudes, by the time we get to that fourth Beatitude, and we've, done the, and we, and we've really wrapped our mind the, around these previous three, we will no longer be satisfied with spiritual schizophrenia. We will no longer be satisfied by looking for love, you heard this before, in all the wrong places. We long to be whole for our souls to find rest in God. And this is what Jesus wants us to wrestle with before him. Now, secondly, as we wrestle with these things before him, then we, then we sort of embrace a set of values or beatitudes in relationship to others. Okay, look back at the text. This is Beatitude 5 and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Who are the most merciful people that you know? I want you to think about that person. 
it was a grandmother or brother and sister or a friend. Typically, the people who are most merciful are those who know best the mercies of God. See, when we lack mercy, okay, when we lack a sympathy and empathy for others, we have forgotten, have we not, that we, in fact, were the objects of mercy. So, so what is mercy? So if, if grace is, is getting something you don't deserve, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And every one of us deserves judgment. And what we are doing when God calls us to mercy is recognizing that we first were the benefactors of mercy ourselves. Is there somebody right now in your life that you are having a hard time forgiving? Is, is, there, is there some sort of grudge that you have been carrying around with you? And most of us probably have something like that in our minds. And let, let, let me just say, that the more you stew on that grudge, the more you stew on that unforgiveness, like you're really a happy person when that happens, aren't you? No. We're miserable. We stew and we vent and we have rage and all those sorts of things. And Jesus' prescription here, it's, it's, not, it's not to deny justice. And it's not a tit for tat. Well, if you're merciful, then God will be merciful to you. Or if you forgive, then God will forgive you. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying those who have truly experienced the mercy and grace of God, they will be compelled towards mercy because they know themselves. Sometimes the people who are the angriest, sometimes the people who are most aloof and the least merciful and the most angry are the most unaware, self-aware self people, right? They've forgotten. They're, as use a Paul Tripp term, they're spiritual amnesiacs. We all do this. We forget who we are. We forget what we've been saved from. We forget the mercies of God. But when we are merciful, man, that pipeline of experiential mercy just flows through our veins, doesn't it? And Jesus says, this yields, look at verse 8, a purity in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, what does that term mean, pure of heart? What's the opposite of someone who is pure of heart? They're impure of heart, which means that they are mixed, that they are double-minded, that, they are, that they, are, they are of two minds. The purity of heart, the pure in heart, are those who have all their cards on the table. They are the ones who are not full of guile. In other words, sometimes in talking with people, you get the sense, I'm getting worked here, right? Like there's something going on here. Like he, he or she says it's about this, but it's really about that. That's called duplicity. You're being played. That's the opposite of being pure in heart. The pure in heart are those not that who don't share their feelings or their thoughts. They most certainly do. 
But it's all on the table. What we see is what we get. Now, why does it say the pure in heart see God? What does that mean? Because what was the cry of every Jew in the Old Testament? Everybody would ask for this, and God would never give it, right? God, what did Moses say? God, show me what your face. Oh, no, no, Moses, you can't handle that. Here, there is, a, there is a promise here. The pure in heart shall see God. And what this means is that there, there, there will be the experience of unhindered communion with God for the pure in heart. I want you to think about those times, and I can think about them in my own life, where I've had an interaction with someone, a meeting, and I was not pure in heart. I was double-minded. I had impure motives. I had an agenda. I had a thing. I was working towards a thing. I was kind of playing my cards close to my best. And I walk out of that meeting, and how do I feel? How do you feel? Dirty. Slimy. <laughs> Underhanded. And I can't see God. I can't experience the communion with God. So where do I go back to? Blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> it's like, well, that's so hard, Pastor Paul. That, that's, you see? But it's beautiful. It's the path to flourishing. It's the path to righteousness. One of the things that, that, that we need to understand here is that, and again, look at this progression. These are all outward actions, okay, outward dispositions towards others, towards, those, towards others we're being merciful towards, towards those we are being pure in heart. And this ultimately lands us in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let me ask you a, a question, and let me show you how these two tie together. Where does drama in relationships come from? It comes from the impure in heart, right? I have an agenda. I have something I'm wanting to do or make happen. But when you're temperamental, when you're manipulative, when you are one who is working everything in your favor, here's what happens. When people get a glimpse of the real agenda, they're always really happy about that, right? No. They're angry. They feel like they've been deceived. Havoc and discord are the result. Do you see the connection between these two? Why pure in heart is crucial for being a peacemaker? Guys, for, for, for some of us, let the hear here. You may feel like drama just follows me wherever I go. It's kind of like, I ask you what your favorite Peanuts character is, and, and somebody the other day told me it was Schroeder, and good, good for you, okay? But mine is Pigpen. Because as Pigpen goes, what follows Pigpen? That cloud of dust, right? And for some of us, we're not peacemakers. We are conflict instigators. But let me tell you something, and again, you can't take any of these out of their, they all built, see how they all build together? But if you're not, you're either one of two, doing one of two things in relationships. You're either causing the drama or you're reworking to fix it. That's what a peacemaker does. 
Now understand something. Peacemaking is different than peacekeeping. Peacekeeping is self-centered. Peacekeeping is all about you. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to say that thing. I want to avoid that conflict. That person might be angry. And really, I just want to protect that person's feelings, Pastor Paul. No, you really want to protect yourself, right? A peacemaker is a truth teller. There can't be peace without truth. There has to be truth. But you're not thriving on the conflict. What is the deepest desire of your heart is that there be peace and unity in the truth among the brothers. What does Romans 12, 18 say? If possible, so far as it depends on you, what? Live peaceably with all. There's some situations you can't fix. But God, the charge to be a peacemaker as much as you possibly can is always there because through that, people come to see that you are a son of God, a daughter of God, that you can walk away from always having the upper hand because God has made peace with you. Now, as, before we turn to this last section, let, 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 again, let me just emphasize something. These are axiomatic statements. They are not if you're merciful or if you forgive, God will forgive you, God will be merciful. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that those who are forgiven, those who are, are merciful, those who are pure in heart, these are the ones that are truly flourishing. Now, as we're before God and before others, Jesus tells us what happens as we do these things before the world. Look at verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If there are ever two beatitudes that are so odd, so counterintuitive, so mind-blowing, and let, let's put some other labels on it, seemingly so foolish, so offensive, so just unrealistic, Pastor Paul, in this 21st century, if you just knew the context that I worked in, we have to remind ourselves of something. Guys, when, when suffering and persecution and all those things seem antithetical to the purposes of God or our ultimate joy, that might tell us how far afield we have strayed from a biblical worldview. I could read 30 verses like this, but let me just read this one. 1 Peter 4. Beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And sometimes, we, are we not utterly shocked that suffering is happening to us? We are utterly surprised. We, we lose a job, or we are maligned for our beliefs or what we're doing has set us apart to the culture around us and we're, we feel like we're being mistreated and we act indignant as if something strange was happening and Jesus said, this is the way of it. Why? No servant is greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, Jesus tells his disciples, of course they're going to persecute you. Now, why, oh, why, though, does Jesus say that person who suffers for righteousness' sake, why is that person happy? Why is that person flourishing? That, that's a great question. And I think it's, it's simply this. That person at that moment is having confirmed for them who they truly are. It's part of God's assurance for you that you belong to me. If you're suffering, you're being maligned, you are being introduced to this idea of participating in the sufferings of Christ. And the sufferings of Christ, please hear this, are only for his children, are only for his beloved, are only for his brothers and sisters. It's only for those that he is shaping into his image. Acts 5.41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. See, that's impossible for people whose happiness terminates on simply what's here and now. Jesus says, blessed are you, flourishing are you when people persecute you. Why? Look at verse 12 in Matthew 5. Your reward is great in heaven. What is the, the outcome of this? What is the fuel of all this? It is joy, joy in the Lord. See, even Jesus, we think about what was it that compelled Jesus to the cross? It wasn't duty. It wasn't drudgery. Listen to what Hebrews 12 tells us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, what? Joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Saint, if you are suffering, you are suffering, please remember this, if you're a Christian, as a child of God. There's nothing accidental. There's nothing outside the scope of his sovereignty. And through that suffering, there is the gentle assurance, is there not, that you belong to me. Just as I suffered, I'm calling you to participate in my sufferings with me. Knowing that as you do, not only will you draw closer in communion with me, but your reward is great in heaven. And when we come to the, to the table, we're simply saying, I believe that. I, I put my faith there. This is what I'm banking my life on. Because Jesus is all of these things in spades. Jesus fulfilled all of these beatitudes in perfection, and he ended up on a cross so that we might have life. Do you know this Jesus? Do you hear his invitation to the good life, the flourishing life? It's the one that's found in him. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and just spend a moment or two 
preparing your hearts to come to the table. And as you do that, I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward to prepare to serve communion.